The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Welcome to All Souls Forum. I'm Spencer Graves, a member of the Forum Committee. Today we will hear Ryan Sorrell discuss the role of radical black media and the future of information. I heard about him from Laura McDonald, who is scheduled to address this forum four weeks from now. I was so impressed with what he has done. I interviewed him for Community of Reason last November 20 and Radioactive Magazine November 22. And I created a Wikipedia article on the Kansas City Defender, the news outlet of which he is the founder and publisher. He has been a leader in tailoring his message to different audiences on the different social media platforms. That work helped secure for the Kansas City Defender the 2022 Community Engagement Award from local independent online news or Lion Publishers. Lion Publishers, by the way, also helped launch the Kansas City Beacon founded by Kelsey Ryan, who addressed this forum almost a year ago. The mission of this forum is to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and to promote critical thinking. It has been doing this since 1943. Ryan? Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me on here. Continue. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, so I, I would, I'm very excited to be here. I uh, want to start off just by providing some context and background about the tradition that our news organization, the Kansas City Defender, is rooted in. Uh, which is the Black radical tradition of the press. Uh, and that's very important to us and, and the philosophy that we're grounded in. And so I, I definitely want to speak a little bit about uh, that. And specifically, there's a, a video that I often refer people to that's called uh, the Black Press Soldiers Without Swords. Uh, and in the beginning of that video, there's a, a famous Black journalist named Vernon Jarrett who says, we didn't exist in the other papers. We were neither born, we didn't get married, we didn't die, we didn't fight in any wars, we never participated in anything of scientific achievement, we were truly invisible unless we committed a crime. But in the black press, the, the Negro press, we did get married. They showed us our babies being born, they showed us graduating, they showed our PhDs. And another black woman uh, journalist named Phil Garland says, uh, the black press was never intended to be objective because it didn't see the white press being objective. It often took a position. It had an attitude. This was a press of advocacy. There was news, but the news had an admitted and a deliberate slant. And and the last piece that I think from the introduction of that of that documentary that's important is it says for over 150 years, African-American newspapers were among the strongest institutions in black America. They helped to create and stabilize communities. They spoke forcefully to the political and economic interests of their readers while employing thousands. 
Black newspapers provided a forum for debate among African Americans and gave voice to a people who were voiceless. With a pen as their weapon, they were soldiers without swords. And I think that uh, that to me is just one of the most powerful uh, summaries and and uh, recounting of a history that I think is off is really largely lost. Unfortunately, uh, we're, we're not taught about black black you know press in schools. We I went to college. We didn't even learn about the black press in college, and um, it's been incredibly important to the tradition, especially of social justice and of movements. It was important to the civil rights movement. It was important to uh, whether it was Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Black Panther Party actually was funded by their own newspaper that they sold on the streets. Uh, that was how the Black Panther Party was actually funded. And so a lot of times we think of organizations like the Black Panther Party as uh, community organizations, but they were actually a part of the Black press tradition. And so that really is the foundation and the philosophy that that we are rooted in. And so I kind of also want to talk a little bit about uh, the tradition, not only of the Black press, but how did, how did we as journalists and how did we uh, as news, like where do we get the idea and the philosophy of what news is supposed to be in the United States of America? And so two uh, very important facts, I think historical facts that exist are number one in 1704, the very first, uh, not black, not black newspaper, but uh, American newspaper. So, seventeen oh four, the very first newspaper in United States history was called the Boston Newsletter, and uh, that was the very first continuously published newspaper in the United States. Uh, and it was also the very first paper involved in the slave trade. It began running slave ads less than a month after it was founded. Uh, the ad from a local merchant sought a purchaser of two Negro men, a Negro woman, and a child. The paper's publisher's name was John Campbell, and he acted as a broker. So he actually creates, helps create the economy of slavery through the very first newspaper that existed in United States history. Um, and so from the very beginning, the very foundation of the profession of journalism in the United States of America was rooted in the dehumanization, the exploitation, and quite frankly, the genocide of Black people. And so we have to understand that that is at the root of what we understand news and journalism to be in the United States. And so that's that's the first fact. But the second fact uh, is that in 1898, in North Carolina, uh, the white supremacist publisher and editor of Rayleigh's News and Observer, which was the largest uh, news outlet in the state at the time, which was run by the publisher named Josephus Daniels, helped lead a coup that overthrew the Wilmington's uh, Wilmington's multiracial government, which was uh, one of the first ra multiracial governments in United States history. And it was also the only armed overthrow of a local government to this day in United States history. And this happened in 1898. Again, the only armed overthrow, the only successful coup of a local government in United States history was led by the publisher and editor of Rayleigh's largest 
uh, North Carolina's largest newspaper called the News and Observer. And by the way, the News and Observer still exists today. And I really cannot think of any other profession, any other situation where uh, the leader of an organization could lead a coup against the United States government successfully and that organization not be labeled a terrorist group, honestly. And uh, this organization still exists today and is, uh, you know, just keeping on like as if nothing ever happened today. Uh, and so, again, we have to understand that uh, these foundations uh, that journalism and news are rooted in actually matter and that we don't we didn't learn these uh, alleged values of journalism things like so-called objectivity those didn't just come out of nowhere they weren't just created uh out of the thin air that people had reasons to want to uh perpetuate these alleged ideas of so-called objectivity and that they are really rooted in histories of white supremacy and histories of anti-blackness and exploitation so uh, that is really what we believe at the Kansas City Defender. And that's why we are really pushing back against a lot of what traditional journalism is supposed to be. And that's why we're uh, creating a lot of our own new practices. And we still are very much uh, believe in accuracy. We believe in journalistic integrity. We believe in truth. Um, but we, at the same time, don't believe in things like objectivity that say that we're not supposed to have a standpoint because from the very beginning of the black press in the United States, the entire purpose of the black press was to have a standpoint and to advocate against things like the abolition of slavery, uh, such as Frederick Douglass's North Star or Ida B. Wells journalism that denounced lynchings uh, and racial terrorism or the Chicago defender who we were inspired by and named after who and, and, uh, invigorated and uh, convinced and motivated a lot of black people to move away from the Jim Crow South and created the Great Migration to have black people move northward to places like Chicago. Um, and so the black press has always been a press that has been an advocacy type of press that has taken very strong positions on issues that doesn't always separate the ideas of news and editorial cleanly, as we're told in journalism school that we're supposed to do. And uh, even the way that's really our philosophy, but even in the way that we operate our organization, um, a lot of us don't. I, I don't have any journalism background, actually. And a lot of our uh, reporters and interns don't have journalism backgrounds either. And in many cases, we see that we view that to potentially be a good thing because uh, it can oftentimes be we, we have less unlearning that we need to do. And we have uh, we're not as indoctrinated into these ideas that we are supposedly supposed to believe that we would have been taught in journalism school. So I think that that's uh, just kind of uh, overarching uh, information about our organization and our philosophy and uh, how we operate. But I would be happy to move. I don't know if you want me to move forward to the uh, the next portion. Um, sure. We are listening to Ryan Sorrell, the founder and publisher of the Kansas City Defender. That's Kansas City Defender, all one word dot com. 
So please, uh, yes, continue, Ryan. You've got, I think, another 20 minutes or so before the question and answer session. Awesome, awesome. Uh, definitely. So I think we can move on to the first example uh, here, which unfortunately uh, people listening to this won't be able to see the examples, but I can read them off visually as best as possible. But uh, kind of, I, I want to just provide uh, a visual example and show the concrete because kind of thus far, I've been talking about a lot of philosophy. I have been talking about uh, some abstract ideas, but I want to provide very real concrete examples right here in Kansas City that have taken place and show people that these philosophies actually matter and that they impact real people's lives. Uh, you know, I, I provided this historical background about 200, 300 years ago, uh, 400 years ago in some cases, but this is actually still happening right now at this very moment, uh, how a lot of these news outlets continue to report and how they continue to demonize and dehumanize and even cover up the murders of black people. And so the first example um, that I want to provide is the tragic murder of Malcolm Johnson, which took place in uh, 2021. So uh, maybe just a little bit over a year and a half ago. Um, and the first article that came out after Malcolm Johnson was killed, uh, it says it's from KSHB 41. And it says KCPD officer injured suspect killed during gunfire exchange at gas station. And so just so you can hear it again, it says KCPD officer injured suspect killed during gunfire exchange at gas station. And so we'll, we'll come back to this, but I just want to be clear that it, it focuses first on the KCPD officer being injured. Secondly, it says suspect killed during gunfire exchange at a gas station. Uh, a few days later, uh, another news outlet releases a story uh, that is headlined, retired FBI agent says lethal force likely justifiable in the KCPD shooting. Uh, so one more time, it says retired FBI agent says that lethal force likely justifiable in that KCPD shooting. And again, uh, just to pro provide context here, this retired FBI agent had has nothing to do whatsoever to do. Uh, he was not present at the scene when this shooting took place. Uh, he was not there. He, he really has absolutely nothing to do with this case. But this news outlet decided uh, to use his opinion uh, as the headline of their article where he says that lethal force was likely justifiable in this KCPD shooting, uh, essentially saying that the man deserved to die in more or less words is what he is saying. Um, a few months later, um, well, actually, before I move on to that portion, what we understand so far from imme the immediate aftermath of Malcolm Johnson being killed was the first article saying that uh, there was a gunfire exchange. And so from that article, what we are led to believe was that this man, Malcolm Johnson, he must have had a weapon if there was a gunfire exchange. Uh, he must have been shooting at the police if there was a gunfire exchange. 
Um, he must have been threatening the police if the police decided to kill him. And so ultimately what we are led to believe from these news stories is that he deserved to die. And then after that story, again, we have the FBI agent literally saying that he deserved to die. Um, so this, these are the immediate, uh, you know, the immediate narrative creation that is built directly following this man being murdered by the Kansas City Police Department. And months later, uh, we find out uh, uh, a KCUR publishes a story um, that they received from numerous faith leaders in the city. And it says, faith leaders released video of Kansas City police killing Malcolm Johnson. And so this is actually the first time that his name is actually used in the headline, uh, which is a very important point that we'll come back to. But it says, faith leaders release video of Kansas City police killing Malcolm Johnson and demand accountability. Um, and so what actually happens, because I can't show the video here, don't even really want to show the video, but what actually happens in this situation and, and what we see in the video that is released that was actually leaked by uh, employees of the gas station who leaked the surveillance footage to some local faith leaders who then leaked that the, that video to the press. Uh, what we see in that video is that Malcolm Johnson never had a gun in his entire possession throughout the entirety of the video. He never had a weapon at all. He was actually being held on the ground by three police officers and one of the police officers accidentally shoots another police officer and kills Malcolm. Uh, so one police officer again accidentally shoots another police officer and then kills Malcolm. And so if we go back to that first headline one more time where it says KCPD officer injured. Suspect killed during gunfire exchange at gas station will understand that this entire headline is really a complete lie and that the people who fabricated this lie were the actual police department because you had four or five police who were actually on the scene, a part of this situation, who must have falsified the official police records because they knew that Malcolm never had a gun and they still decided to write in the official police report that he had a gun and that he was shooting at the police. And because of so-called standard journalistic practices, most journalistic outlets will uh, unquestioningly parrot or what a lot of people call be st being stenographers for the police. These news outlets reported directly what the Kansas City Police Department had in the official police report, which we'll come to understand official police reports are actually oftentimes simply uh, press releases or even public relations statements is really how they function. And so um, it's a very, you know, horrific situation. And I, again, it shows us how ju these journalistic practices, like believing the police at face value, thinking that the police official police records are the facts and the truth and that the police get to create what the facts are. Uh, those types of practices allowed for Malcolm to be killed and they covered up his murder directly after it happened. A lot of people to this day still don't know about this story. And um, even here in Kansas City, because as is often said, fake news travels faster than the truth. And in this case, uh, because we often have conversations about 
disinformation on social media. People are always talking about disinformation and, and, you know, in the context of things like Russia or people talk about disinformation in the context of Twitter bots or fake, uh, fake information on social media. But rarely, if ever, do, do people talk about state sanctioned dis- disinformation that's actually created by the police department and that's disseminated by so-called legitimate sources of news. And that's exactly what this situation was. And so that is the first example. Uh, the second example that we would talk about that, uh, unfortunately, again, you can't see the, uh, you can't see visually here, which we have on the screen. Uh, if you were able to see on the left side, it says white media and it has a headline from Fox 4 News. And on the right side, it says black media. And it's a headline from the same story from the Kansas City Defender. And so on the left side from Fox 4 News, the headline reads, quote unquote, self-harm, unquote, leaves, leads to Kansas inmate death, sheriff says. And so again, that says, quote, Self-harm, unquote, leads to Kansas inmate death, sheriff says. On the right side, uh, from the Kansas City Defender, it says, Marcus Hurd was found dead in a Kansas jail. Police claim alleged suicide, but his family says he had a boot print on his cheek, a swollen face, and was never suicidal. And so again, that says, Marcus Hurd was found dead in a Kansas jail. Police claim alleged suicide, but his family says he had a boot print on his cheek, a swollen face, and was never suicidal. And so if we just look at the dichotomy of these, um, you know, oftentimes I'll ask audiences whenever I'm speaking with people what they spot the differences to be. And so some of the differences that people have pointed out to me was that on the left side, it simply refers, it says, Kansas inmate's death. It doesn't even say his name, uh, which is very dehumanizing. Also on the on the white media side, it has a picture of his mugshot. Uh, also very dehumanizing. And the only source that it that it quotes in the headline on the Fox Four side is Sheriff says, uh, and it also states very authoritatively uh, as if the sheriff what the sheriff is saying must be true. Uh, on the right side. Uh, the Kansas City Defender uses Marcus Hurd's actual name. It says police claim alleged suicide because it is a claim and it is an allegation. Uh, it also, more importantly, uh, quotes his family because uh, this is something I was actually just talking to high school students and they were the ones who mentioned this point And they said uh, his family knows him the best. His family would have the best idea of what kind of mental state he was in. They have known him his entire life. They would know if he uh, was ever suicidal. And um, so to include his family is very incredibly important in a situation such as this. And so, uh, again, very, you know, diametrically opposing headlines and very two different ways of describing and framing a story. And again, they had the mugshot on the side of white media, on the side of the Kansas City Defender, there's a picture of him with his four baby children uh, who are smiling and uh, sitting 
and one of his babies is laying on his or two of his babies are laying on his chest and so it's a much more humanizing picture um that really shows him as a human being and as a person um and uh one of the things i also want to mention here is that by manipulating the style of their writing, journalists can make the police seem like heroes and portray police victims as dangerous criminals. Um, that's what we saw in both of these scenarios. Um, and also that describing police violence in the passive voice, doing things such as saying man shot or man dies and officer involved shooting, instead of saying police killed a man or police shot this man, those when whenever you're speaking in a passive voice saying man shot or man dies, it makes it again appear as if they just died out of thin air or we have no idea how they died. Uh, and what that does is it downplays the police's responsibility for the violence. Um, so there's an image here on the screen that uh, on the left side, it says copaganda. And under that, it says armed man dies. And then the translation of that, it says, and, and how it should be described is that police kill man. And so these are just things that we should be very cognizant of when we are consuming information and consuming news. Um, and, and I think one of the other pieces that uh, before, you know, I uh, close out here, I think one of the very important aspects of the work that black news outlets do um that particularly radical black news outlets do is not only exploit uh ex excuse me expose these uh horrifically racist practices that journalistic news outlets are doing that the police themselves are doing um that is happening in schools and all these other places not only do we expose racism and uh call for justice but at the same time what is equally important to us is uh creating positive black images uh what we call creating presence rather than absence in the spirit of uh Ruth Wilson Gilmore who is a prison industrial complex abolitionist she says we believe in presence rather than absence and so the way that we practice that is by providing positive black images. And so we, one of the ways that we do that is through having a black student of the month. Um, and again, you can't see the image here, but we have a young student named Isaiah Evans who attends uh, Lincoln Prep High School. And he was our black student of the month. He's actually a, a pretty famous YouTuber. Um, he recently just got accepted into Morehouse College or university. And um, we have just a few pictures of him with his, him and his friends uh, here. And uh, the reason that we do Black Student of the Month is because very often uh, young Black people are uplifted for things like being good athletes and things like, uh, yeah, that's that's really, you know, one of the biggest things is if, if especially if you're a young Black, uh, you know, boy student. And so what we want to do is expand the realm of possibilities and uh, the realm of uplifting black students. And so we encourage people to apply who are in theater, who are in the orchestra, who uh, are YouTubers and kind of show that there's all these different forms of expression for 
black students that can be providing positivity to the community. And so uh, I think that, again, just to kind of close out here, that on the, the first end, it's really important that we understand the history and the foundation and the philosophy of journalism at large in the United States and specifically of the black press. It's important that we become more aware of how white news outlets are being violent in the practices that they are using and that these aren't just philosophies that you learn in journalism school. They actually have real impacts on people's lives, such as we saw in both of those examples. Um, and then lastly, that what the black press is doing that's innovative, that is uh, forward looking, is providing these positive images as well. And um, I think that the last piece that we are doing specifically at our news outlet is using social media in very unique and innovative ways. We, we're very active on TikTok, on Twitter, on Instagram, and we're using these social platforms really as our primary central way of reaching our audiences, which over 60% of our audience now is uh, between the ages of 13 years old and 30 years old. And so we've been able to use social media, and, and that's really where things are moving towards is less on websites and more information on social media. And oftentimes we are told to believe that social media is a place where fake news exists, but it's also very much a place where real news can exist and does exist. Um, and it's also where a lot of young people, a very pretty much all young people, uh, get their news from social media at this point. And so I think rather than denouncing it or saying this is bad for journalism or that this is the decline of so-called real journalism, I think what we should be doing is finding ways to become a part of that and to make our news accessible to young people. They they already live on social media, so instead of telling them they shouldn't be getting news from social media, we should be making our news accessible and easy to use and access on social media. Um, and so I think that really that's what the future of information and news is moving towards as well. Okay, great. Uh, thanks, Ryan. We have, uh, I think, another 11, uh, 11 minutes or so before the question and answer session. But before uh, you go to the next example or whatever, I need to remind our audience that we are listening to Ryan Sorrell, the founder and publisher of the Kansas City Defender. Ryan? Uh, definitely. Let me just pull up our... Um... Yeah, I think you, you said uh, earlier you had something like 10 different examples and you've gone through three of them. So I don't think you've got time for the for all 10, but <laughs> the remaining seven or whatever they are, but go. Yeah, well, uh, I think I can also just talk about a few uh, other stories that I think are uh, very important and demonstrate the kind of work that we do. Uh, one of them also took place recently at University Academy uh, High School, where I had a few students maybe a, a week or two before Thanksgiving. I had a few students who reached out to me and said that they had a white teacher who was repeatedly using the N-word and that the students asked him to stop saying the N-word and that he refused to stop saying it because he said that it was for that they it was cancel culture. He said that they can't censor his speech. Uh, they said he said that um, 
it was for educational purposes. Again, these are black students asking a white teacher not to say the N-word. And so they took their concerns to the administration. Uh, for two weeks, the administration did not do anything whatsoever, uh, at least not that they informed the students of. And so uh, the students had to had reached out to us at the Defender and told us uh, during, you know, at the beginning of that two week period. And so we waited to publish any story on it and to see if the school was going to do anything about it, if they were going to take any reasonable action, if they were going to have any repercussions for the teacher who refused to stop saying the N-word. And University Academy did not take any action whatsoever against the teacher in that time period. And they also had absolutely no feedback for the students. They did not communicate anything to the students. And so the students were under the impression that absolutely nothing was being done. And so we went ahead after two weeks of hearing absolutely nothing. The students reached back out to us and said, can you please publish a story about this? This is like really harming our learning environment. And we would just love if you can bring awareness to what's happening here. And so we end up. Uh, we talked to the students, we tried to reach out to the administrator or to the superintendent and to the principal. The principal didn't respond at press time whenever we were working on the story. And the superintendent basically gave a non-statement uh, at the time that we were working on it. I, I reached out to them specifically um, and received a non-statement essentially that said that they weren't talking about it. Uh, and so we went ahead and published the story and it starts to go viral basically on our social media. And within 20 minutes, the principal is calling my phone and, uh, the superintendent responds with a statement. And then they say that they're, uh, beginning an investigation. And so it really, it took all of this for the school to do something that they should have been doing at the very beginning. And uh, it's really just very sad, honestly, that students have to endure. And, and this is not the first case or situation. Like this is one of many, many times uh, across Missouri and Kansas where black students have uh, had to endure these types of racially toxic, violent, uh environments that they're supposed to be safe uh safe learning environments and it's very sad again that students who respectfully and uh responsibly reported their concerns to the administration first and and that's also important here is that they took the correct avenue they didn't they didn't even go which even if they wanted to there's no problem with that but they didn't even go directly to the press they went to the administration first and reported it through the proper channels, hoping that something would be done. And essentially it was more or less being swept under the rug. And then the students are forced to go to the press. And uh, I think that kind of the reason I use that example is because that's also important to the work that we have been doing uh, in the community is creating relationships and trust with students. And there are now, because of a lot of the stories, just like this one, that we have been able to cover, uh, students know that they have a news outlet that will be, uh, that will advocate for them, that will give them a platform to voice their concerns if 
other news outlets don't want to cover it, if uh, it's being swept under the rug at their school, they know that they have a news outlet that uh, will advocate on their behalf. And so that's also a part of because oftentimes now uh, people kind of in the news industry are noticing that we are reaching young people and they'll say, like, what social media strategies are you all using to reach young people? And social the social media strategy is part of it. And the fact that we're on TikTok and that we're on Instagram and that we're on Twitter is important. But that's not the reason that young people are gravitating towards the work that we're doing. The reason that young people are gravitating towards it is because we're advocating on their behalf and we're talking about topics that are important to them. And we even let we let high schoolers write pieces also. Uh, because, again, to me, a lot of these high schoolers who have not been indoctrinated into the ideas and uh, what we are taught journalism is and supposed to be the professional version of journalism, uh, a lot of these high, I mean, all these high schoolers have not been socialized or indoctrinated into those beliefs yet. And so I, I believe personally that Black high school students have far more robust understandings of race than even the editor, executive editors, editors and chiefs of any local news outlet in the area. And that's something that I have always believed in. And we've had numerous high school interns from Lincoln Prep, from uh, Raytown South, from Olathe. And all of our high school students who are all Black uh, high school interns, I believe personally have far more robust understandings of race and therefore should be able to voice their concerns in the news. Um, and so we just last year, we had uh, our interns write pieces that were actually featured. Half of our organization is news, but the other half of our organization is community programs. And so we do things uh, such as what we call grocery buyouts, where we'll uh, just most recently, we had a Christmas Eve grocery buyout. We were able to quickly, within the span of a week, raise $3,000 that we then went to uh, a grocery store that was in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And uh, we just stand at the cash register and give direct cash payments to Black people as they're checking out so that they can pay for uh, fresh food, so they can pay for baby diapers or whatever necessities they choose, we give them literal direct cash. And so not restricting what they're able to purchase at all. Um, and that's also very important to us because again, you know, personally, I look at organizations like the Black Panther Party who had these tremendous impacts through their community programs. Like often, like we're often told that they were a militant organization. They, they were a self-defense organization, but before anything, they created uh, community ambulance programs. So people didn't, that didn't have money didn't have to call the ambulance and pay thousands of dollars. They could call the Black Panther Party who would transport them to a hospital. They were the ones who created the uh, breakfast program for children. There was a huge conversation about how do you build trust with journalism? How do you build trust? Uh, are young people in Gen Z losing trust in the news and the media? And my response to that often is a lot of these news outlets should lose trust. <laughs> like we shouldn't trust them because of 
how they have reported on things like Malcolm Johnson, how they have reported on things like Marcus Hurd. We don't, they shouldn't have any trust. I'm just excited to continue working on those things. Great. We are listening to Ryan Sorrell, the founder and publisher of the Kansas City Defender. Uh, and uh, we now go to questions and answers. The Q&A portion of today's broadcast was recorded separately from the presentation via Zoom and telephone. What kind of follow-up have you been able to do on some of these cases which have gone out of the news headlines? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think actually a story that I have worked on with Spencer uh, is in relation to uh, an alleged school shooting that took place last year with a student named Jalen Elmore. Um, and immediately upon the situation, so it, it all basically kind of happened uh, with a black student at Olathe East High School. And uh, they said that there was a school shooting that took place and basically every single news outlet across the city and even many numerous national news outlets across the country uh, put this young student named Jalen Elmore. They put his face out there and, and called him a school shooter. And they said that many news outlets were even reporting uh, that he had a vendetta against the principal. And, and so uh, the initial reports that came out were that he was a school shooter. He brought a gun to school and that he shot the principal and that he's also shot school resource officer and so uh those were just the initial reports that that took place i think very similarly to the news out to the headlines we just read those news reports were basically direct uh copies of the press release and the official police report that the Olympic police department put out um without doing any further investigation whereas we did further investigation and uh, we asked and talked to numerous of Jalen Elmore's friends, and we also even interviewed his sister, all who said he had absolutely no motivation to do anything like this. Um, that even that day of, uh, that he did not seem any different. And many of them actually admitted that he did carry a weapon with him everywhere he went. They said he should have never brought a weapon to school, but they said that that wasn't the first day he brought to school. That he was from a very rough part of Louisiana, and that he uh, just carried a gun with him everywhere he went. And uh, but what happened was he got called to the principal's office that day, and the, the assistant principal asked him to remove the gun from his backpack, and Jalen refused to remove the gun from his backpack. And so the assistant principal calls the school resource officer in, and from that point, we don't know what happens next. All we know is that Jalen was shot multiple times and, and was in critical condition. And uh, that the police officer and the, the assistant principal allegedly got shot, but they were out of the hospital within an hour, whereas Jalen was in the hospital for the next two months uh, and had to get multiple life-saving surgeries. Um, and so we, we have made numerous follow-up reports of that story saying that things the, the story that the police department was putting out wasn't really adding up with 
what his friends and what uh, numerous people who knew Jalen were saying, and then come to find out uh, months after that initial situation took place that it was actually the school resource officer who accidentally shot the assistant principal in that situation. And then in addition to that, they're also saying that Jalen supposedly shot the school resource officer's body camera, so now we don't have any body camera footage. And so this is an ongoing case that we're continuing to follow up on. Jalen, uh, despite the fact he was the only one who was shot and uh, shot into critical condition, despite that fact, he's still right now on trial for attempted capital murder facing, you know, potentially the rest of his life in prison. Um, so that's an ongoing case that we're continuing to, to follow up on that is still happening right now. Hi. Um, I was wondering what are some ways uh, we can find common ground between oppressed groups like racial minorities, uh, sexual minorities, religious minorities, women, and other groups like that, uh, so we can sort of uh, unite and fight against um, media bias and other issues uh, that cause problems. Definitely, definitely. Thank you. Um, I would I would say to be involved in organizations that are doing this kind of work. I think there's lots of uh, even just today we there's a a rally happening for reproductive justice at Mill Creek Park at noon today for the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, and that's something that's very important to our news outlet, and I know a lot of black organizers in the city, is intersectionality. So not only advocating, or we find our struggles to be interconnected with the struggle for women's liberation, for LGBTQ plus liberation, um, for all oppressed people in the South State to be uh, involved in, a, in some type of community organization, I think is a great uh, thing to do and also to support as far as media is concerned. I think it's very important to support organizations who are going against uh, these establishment uh, narratives and, and uplifting and supporting voices uh, coming from oppressed communities as well. Perfect presentation. Uh, I'm really impressed with, with uh, your founding of this independent media based upon a digital not-for-profit model. It seems to be the only way we can go forward, especially in the face of not just biased mainstream media, but a totally deteriorating mainstream media in general. We just don't get local coverage, period, let alone dealing with bias. So I'm curious to know, what what's your going-forward economic model to, to succeed and prosper? Uh, as a not for profit, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to make it sustainable. Economic uh, undergirding. So, how are you going to survive? How are you going to prosper economically? Definitely. And thank you uh, for those very kind words. And uh, that's definitely something I've had to think about from the very beginning. Uh, I was honestly just very lucky because my parents, uh, when I first started the news outlet a year and a half ago, my parents let me live with them while I was starting it up. And so if they would not have let me do that, honestly, it would have been impossible 
to have started it, which I think just goes to show the barrier of entry for people to, to do something like this. Um, so I'm just very thankful that I had them to be able to support me when I was starting it. But um, really for the first six months of our organization, when I was starting it, the only uh, revenue that we had was from donations from people in the community. Um, so that was the only revenue stream, whereas now I have joined organizations like Spencer mentioned earlier. There's the local independent online news publishers. There's another one called the Institute for Nonprofit News that we're a part of. So there's these associations that have programs where they help teach founders like myself, uh, like nonprofit skills. And uh, so that something that I have been able to do over the past year is uh, increase our revenue streams. And so now in addition to donations, which we still get donations, um, and donations are definitely one of our biggest revenue streams and most important ways that we're able to survive. Uh, but in addition to that, we also uh, are getting planned to, and, and we've already gotten two grants. Uh, we got a $25,000 grant in March of last year, which was our first major grant. And then we all, we've also gotten a $6,000 grant. And the, there's really a lot of opportunity in grant funding. Um, right now, I'm still, that's going to be the first hire that I'm able to make is for a development director and someone who's able to, uh, that'll be their full-time job is uh, fundraising, grant grants, and finding major gifts and things like that. And so definitely uh, major grants or grants and major gifts will be the largest portion of our revenue streams. But then, uh, as I mentioned, donations. And then we'll also have things like uh, events, which present opportunities for sponsorships with people who are aligned with our values, will allow to sponsor our events and things like that. So I think that there's a number of, opportunities to be sustainable as a as a nonprofit news organization i think it just requires uh creativity and um uh, but there's actually increased in in comparison to years past there's a large increase from like foundations and uh specifically local nonprofit news and they are very interested in it right now so i think that the prospect of getting grant funding is really just getting higher and higher uh, right now. So, but yeah, I think that's a great question. So thank you. And I wanted to ask you to prepare for uh, growth. Uh, what, how we're going to resist uh, like the algorithms of for example, that inhibit access to national, probably international websites like Black Gender Report or Jared Balls, I mix what I like, or Color Lines or the Hampton Institute. How do you see that as you move forward? How do you resist these algorithms and how do you resist? An onslaught of corporate media, but that we can see 
because one of the reasons that the Black Alliance for Peace, for example, is inhibited access because of their stance on Ukraine doesn't jive well liberal conscientious at all. So moving forward with your business model, how do you plan to resist the onslaught of proto-schistic inhibitions for people? Very, very, I love that question. Uh, thank you. And I'm definitely a very big fan of Black Agenda Report also and Jared Ball. And I think uh, before I started, that was actually what my my only full-time job that I've ever had. I was working for a digital PR agency and I was doing search engine optimization. And so I learned how the Google algorithm works and how social media algorithms work. And so I, I'm able to use that to art right now at the time being. I think until I'm pretty certain that there will come a time when uh, Google does not like what we're doing or whoever doesn't, whether it's Google, whether it's the government, whoever. Uh, there's going to come a time, I'm, I'm sure, where if, if it already hasn't because we've been shadow banned already on Instagram, uh, we've had numerous of our posts censored on these social media platforms. And so I think it's only a matter of time before someone like Google uh, tries to demote us or do what they have done to Black Agenda Report. Google isn't even our, our main source of traffic right now. Our main source of traffic comes from Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And so, um, but even with those, you still are at the whims of, is until they want to censor you, until they want to delete your page. Um, and so even with those, they're kind of, I kind of vary. And so I think that's why while we have these social media platforms, while we are searchable on Google, uh, I think we have to also be driving people to like our email newsletter, which is something that really can't be censored in the same way. The only people who might be able to do anything to your email newsletter is like a hosting, a web hosting company or like uh, uh, your email distributor, which they almost... I've never really ever heard of them like censoring people. And so, and they, I mean, they can't like control how many, if you have an email list, they can't like not send your emails out to people. So I think that emails are like one of the safest like bets to make. And I think secondly, and more importantly, is because of the fact we're a, a local news outlet and not a national news outlet, I think that uh, actually, Again, physically being in the actual community and having like having real relationships with people is the most powerful thing beyond any social media platform. And so that's why, and, so, and like even when, um, like, like we've had stories where all the other news outlets across the city said that we were lying, and people who follow our platform because they know 
the type of work that we do and the relationships that we have with people in the community, they really don't care what these national or white-owned media outlets are saying because they know that we are helping uplift the voices of black people in our city. And so to me, if we can, as long as we continue doing things, like we do things called grocery buyouts with grocery stores um, or, or grocery stores in black neighborhoods here in Kansas City, and we'll beforehand we'll raise maybe two or three thousand dollars then we'll go to a black grocery store and stand at the cash register and just give black people direct cash while they're paying for food for diapers whatever they need to buy we give them direct cash uh to people in the community we also host poetry events we support black businesses and so having direct relationships with people in the community and being an actual not a news outlet, but a community organization. Uh, I think that that is something that can't be censored basically by Google or it can't be shadow banned by Instagram because we're having an actual real physical presence in the community. So I think that that's like what we, that's the ultimate foundation of what we're building and what we're creating and that that's something that can't be, uh, take away as easily just something like an Instagram page or something. So I think that's kind of how we view it. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.